Are you ever curious what's going on behind the scenes in Hollywood? You watch a Netflix show or a Marvel movie and you wonder, why was that person in it? Why did this movie get made? I'm Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News, and I'm covering the inside conversation about money and power in Hollywood. With my new show, The Town, on the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm going to take you inside Hollywood with exclusive insight on what people in show business are actually talking about. Multiple times a week, we're going to bring you short, digestible episodes featuring some of the smartest people I know breaking down the hottest topics in entertainment to tell you what's really going on. Follow The Town now and listen on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Hey everybody, welcome back. You are listening to Black on the Air. Yes, this is Larry Wilmo. Larry Will Mo. I dropped the R-E. I'm just the Mo. <laughs> Being real silly. Um, appreciate you um, choosing this podcast. Um, really interesting episode today. Talking to Chris uh, Fabricant about his book, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. Guys, this book, whoo, man, you just go... Our criminal justice system is fucked up. Oh, man. I mean, some of you, of course, already know that. But, man, when things uh, just hit you in the face about the way in which it's fucked up. It's one thing to say it's fucked up. But the na- the manner in which it's fucked up. And through this book, talking about junk science, it's really, really an amazing book. And a um, great conversation with Chris. I appreciate him being on the show. We had a conversation a little while ago. Um, it is Easter weekend. Happy Easter to, to um, all of Jesus' buddies out there. You know, I'm Catholic. This is a Thursday's Holy Week. Friday's Good Friday. I'm doing this on Good Friday. But I probably shouldn't be doing that, but who knows? I have so many demerits at this point. <laughs> I don't even, I'm saying demerits, but whatever. Um, and I think Passover, I think is this weekend. I know we're in Ramadan. There's a lot of stuff people are uh, observing this month. There's a lot going on, you guys. A lot going on. Um, a lot going on in the world, of course. Still happening in Ukraine, all that stuff. Um, a lot of world events, things happening here. I thought I wouldn't talk about a lot of that stuff today. I'm going to be a bit reflective. Because <laughs> uh, you know what? I love thinking about macro issues a lot. You know, I'm kind of a philosopher at heart. I wanted to study that in college, but ended up being a theater major instead, you know. Um, but I do like philosophizing about things. I love having those kind of conversations with friends of mine. When I was, especially in my twenties, you know, when you have all the time in the world, man, I'd stay up all night talking with friends about just philosophy and the world and stuff like that. Those oh, some of the best conversations. You kids in your twenties, take advantage of that time. I'm telling you, have long conversations. But I still like talking about that stuff. I like exploring it, all that kind of stuff. And many things can stimulate the thinking of. The macro, I'll call it, you know, the global. What is the big picture? And recently, it's funny, I'm list- you're listening to my podcast, but I want to uh, uh, recommend another podcast. Um, it's called Fall of Civilizations. Um, and I'm sure you can find it wherever podcasts are. And guys, it is fascinating. 
like I've gotten into history lately. Um, Dan Carlin's show is in a world of its own, hardcore history and that kind of stuff. Love that. But this is so interesting um, because, and I, I don't remember the guy's name who does it, but um, he's English. And of course, when we hear the English accent, we just accept that whatever they're saying is truth. Because, you know, the English very early on figured out that if we truly are superior, we've got to make everyone believe it. And everyone believes that an English accent is the ultimate authoritative accent. Really good job, England. You guys did that pretty well. Um, but anyway, it's really good because it talks about so many different uh, empires um, from the from the Assyrians, Sumerians, to what happened with Rome and Britain, the Byzantine Empire, even the Incas, the Aztecs, Easter Island. Uh, talks about India, China, Africa. There's so many different regions of the world. Vikings. And each story is so fascinating because it puts you right there and to feel how empires, you know, rose and then how they fell, oceans rise, empires fall, as they said in Hamilton. Uh, and the people, to get the experiences of the people who witnessed it too, which is part of the goal in that. So whenever there's writings about it or contemporary accounts or that type of thing, it's always used. It is really interesting, and it makes you reflect on what's going on today, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, like, this is not a very happy thought, but are we in the decline? Are we still on the come up, or are we in the decline? Because it's one or to other, you know. It's not just a straight line for anything. That's kind of how the cycle of life works, too. Um, I told you I was going to get philosophical on you guys. Because I think about this shit all the time. This is what keeps me up at night. This is why I write comedy. Because I got to make myself laugh. Because I think about shit like this. But um, part of part of what's fascinating about that series too. Is some of the things that happen over and over again. Like um, how empires would use their militaries too much. you know, Or how military technology would change and they were fucked. Sometimes it was climate that made a big difference. you know. Sometimes it was a confluence of things, the nature of how the civilization was built in the first place. Um, what gave like the Byzantine Empire its strength was all these different cultures ultimately gave it its downfall, you know, in some, in some ways, you know. Um, Rome's ability to be this mighty world power also became its downfall because it, it it had to stop being a world power. It weakened its core, you know. So there's so many uh, interesting things like that. And and looking at, if you look at a timeline of things, you, you want to say, well, what are the things, what are the signs of decay or what are the signs of decline, you know? And of course, as you're rising as a place you're also at the same time sowing the seeds of decline that's the uh you know the irony of any situation you know as you're becoming you know this big thing you're also sowing the seeds of your ultimate decline in it um at least i think that i made up myself so but i think it is true it seems to be true in all the other things you know even though they don't appear that way necessarily in the beginning and of course, it made me think about America. Uh, it's the current grand empire because we've had a pretty good run of a couple hundred, over a couple hundred years, which is pretty good. You know, um, I was having this conversation. Somebody said, well, what about the what about Russia? I said, mm, Russia really became a thing, 
you know, with the Russian Revolution. So it really had like a 70-year run. I don't think that's good enough. America's had a good 250 years. That's pretty good, you know. So in the contemporary sense, although, it, yeah, and I would agree with you if we say, but it's been a real world power just in the last century. Yeah, but it was it was on the on the come up, you know, for a long time, you know, and kind of represented something. So let's give it the benefit of the doubt that it's had this period of time. But if we're going to get technical, I would agree with you on that. Um, but I wonder if we're seeing any change right now that's taking us to the next stage. I don't want to scare anybody, but I, I think about shit like this because in my lifetime, I think I've seen three cultural shifts that have been permanent where we haven't gone back from those cultural shifts. Um, the first was the 1960s where I believe that cultural shift was our relationship with institutions. I think changed permanently after that before Americans had a very robust belief, like in the presidency and things like religion, even in institution marriage and all kinds of institutions there was more than a robust defense of it and support of it. After the 60s, that was permanently broken. You know, president resigns in 1973. You know, our trust in the presidency and in leadership has never returned. It's never been the same since um, after the 60s. You know, marriage is our views of marriage are completely different now than they were before then our views towards religion and our relationship with it has completely changed. You know, there are so many, and I'm, there are other institutions too, I'm sure, but, but our relationship with institutions, I believe has changed. I'm not saying those changes are good or bad. I'm just saying it's different, right? The second kind of shift I saw, I think nine 11 was the other big cultural change that I witnessed in my lifetime where I believe our relationship with security has changed because before 9-11, you pretty much felt safe in America. And of course, a lot of, a lot of bad shit happened in America. We know that, especially being a black person, a lot of bad shit happened, right? You know, yes, many places you could say it's the murder capital of the world, you know, but as a place compared to the rest of the world, America felt safe. It felt like the safe place to be. Like, especially when you think of warfare, let's look at it like that in the macro sense. With the exception of Pearl Harbor, there really hasn't been an attack on American soil, I guess, since the Civil War, really, honestly, right? Um, America was shielded kind of in World War One. You know, I think Europe was kind of snarky about that a little bit. <laughs> you know, the Americans just come over here for like a year, you know, fight, go home, act like everything's good. Meanwhile, there's boys were dying for years there. You know, they had a real cost to that war. Ukraine still mentions that. World War II, it's a little different. Pearl Harbor kind of ginned America up in a, in a way. We felt vulnerable, but we didn't lose the sense of security because Pearl Harbor's kind of out in the ocean. A lot of people didn't even know that, you know, it was part of the U.S. or whatever. So, but 9-11 was different. Our relationship to security had changed because it changed the nature of how we felt wars are fought before American might was talked about in terms of how many battleships, you know, your technology and your planes, you know, um, just the number of soldiers you have. But we were, you know, taken down to our knees on that day by a handful 
of of terrorists on planes. I mean, that's crazy. Using our own technology. I mean, that shook people to the core. You know, it made us feel vulnerable in the way that I don't think America has ever felt. And I think that was a permanent change. I don't think we will ever be the same as we were before 9-11 as we are after it. We understand that fighting war is different now. You know, it's not just a matter of might. Look at the lesson Russia's learning about that with Ukraine. You would think that would be a no contest, you know, and yet, you know, they can't seem to, why can't they close the door on this immediately? I think Putin wanted a, his version of a blitzkrieg, but it just didn't happen, you know. But, uh, so there are many modern examples of that, and I think we are, there's always something in the back of us that is afraid a terrorist attempt could happen somewhere. The thing that just happened in Brooklyn on the subway. Um, the guy who, you know, exploded a smoke bomb and started shooting people. We don't know what's going on. When stories like that happen, we think that could be a terrorist attack. Nobody knows. We still don't know what happened with that, right? But I think in the back of our collective minds, we feel vulnerable to that type of thing. We did not feel that way pre-9-11. Sorry. Americans did not feel that way. Our shores felt safe. Okay, so that to me is a permanent cultural shift. That's a shift. That's a change in our relationship to the world. So guys, I think we're at a third one now. I think the pandemic is giving us another cultural shift that I think we are not returning to. And I'm going to call it our social glue. Um, I think it's changing right now. There's a lot of other things conspiring for that change, but I think the pandemic is breaking it open. What do I mean by that? Like, and this is going to not seem that consequential, but I think it is. I, I think people have been isolated in a way that they haven't been isolated before. And because of things like social media and, you know, the way we experience the world, we're losing uh, propriety and decorum, you know? So, um, one of the things, even though people have always been assholes and things like that, for the most part, we all kind of had an agreement that in certain places you just don't do certain things. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the exception that does certain things in certain places. But, you know, in the past few years, that's been changing, you know, that you can act out and be your worst self in almost any situation and it's becoming a norm, you know. From Karen's yelling into cameras, you know, uh, the acting out of, of, of people in social media and how they interact with absolutely zero decorum at all, you know, and the, um, the nadir of all of this, of course, is the Will Smith, Chris Rock slap, which I believe pre-pandemic would never have happened. That's just my belief. But there's something about this moment we're having now that I, I believe our social glue is weakening in a way which we haven't seen before. And I believe it is changing our relationship to each other in the way that we're getting way more tribal than ever before. And by the way, this could be a global thing, not just an us thing, you know, because we're all going through this, you know. But to me, <laughs> you know, and I think it's related to a bit of a, of a, 
group uh, PTSD, if you will, you know, that I think we're all experiencing, but I don't know if there's relief at the end of the period. I think we could be seeing a social shift that causes a difference that we can't measure yet, I guess is what I'm saying. It's showing up in other ways too, how people, it's affecting like people's relationship with their jobs. Like people will interact with their job, which was always kind of a place of authority for them or their bosses in a completely different way than they would have before. Sorry, motherfuckers. I ain't coming in anymore. Bank, I ain't even working there anymore. I'm rethinking this whole thing. You know, I'm doing me right now, you know? Um, so I'm concerned about that one because we're, you know, it's like I said, it can't be measured yet, but I think, uh, there is something to that about this social glue that I think is changing. And in all these things, sometimes some of it changes for the best and some of it changes it for not so much a better thing. But as I said, when we're sowing the seeds of success, we're also sowing the seeds of failure at the same time. So I think it can play a dual role. Just my observation. Who knows? I could be wrong. You know, we could be uh, still on our way up to more glory (laughs) or whatever, or, you know, some wires could be exposed right right now to show how frayed our connections really are, you know, and, you know, right when you think you're doing something that seems empowered and powerful, like Russia thinks it's doing this thing right now, that is a powerful moment, but I think it is a death rattle. You know, for Russia personally. I don't even think Putin survives after this. I think it's Russia's death rattle, these actions that they're doing. I don't think it's the beginning of a new empire. I think it's the last gasp of a choking. So, not to end so bleak, you know, but I will end on this note. <laughs> this sounds more sad than I thought it was going to be. Sorry, guys. I apologize. I told you I was getting philosophical. Um, so, in 500 years, I mean, you never know. There may be a child somewhere that is speaking to their parent and they're saying, could you tell me again about that place? What was it called? You called it America? That was like the world power? Really? Can you tell me that story again? And the parent would say, sure, I'll tell you that story. I'll be happy to. And that conversation will be had in Chinese. All right. We got a great uh, talk. Junk Science, Chris Fabricant coming right up. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, Today's special guest, really kind of, this book took me by surprise. I did not see it coming. This is an issue that's all around us all the time. It's so ingrained kind of in the fabric of America constantly. We get it kind of on the side through stories or family members of that. But to feel this up close, I recommend this book. Even before I started reading this, guys, I was recommending to friends, and I really recommend it after reading. And we have the gentleman who's director of the strategic litigation for the Innocence Project, 
The book is Junk Science, and Mr. Chris Fabricant, welcome to Black on the Air. So nice to have you here. So nice to be here. Thank you so much. Chris, what an amazing book. And this, you know, also represents part of your life and your mission and all that kind of stuff. But also for us, it's rare that we get a contemporary history of what's going on in the country, you know, and especially in areas that really matter and really do affect us all, you know, and are critical to how, you know, the country moves forward in big ways, you know, I think. And this book, Junk Science, who is one of those books, you know, and let's start with this notion itself. Can you tell us what exactly is junk science? And let's talk about its connection to criminal justice and how that even started, if you could. Well, you know, what I define junk science in the book is as really subjective speculation masquerading as scientific evidence. Subjective speculation, right. And it's presented to juries as scientific evidence, you know, through the guise of an expert witness testimony. And really, there's no scientific basis for the testimony. There hasn't been any empirical research. It hasn't been scientifically validated. And, you know, it's just used in criminal courts and it's presented as, you know, so-called scientific evidence and has a credible, persuasive power. You know, you think about advertising or something like that. It's always scientifically tested, you know, and it's like the seal of approval. And what I tried to do with the book is, is trace how the history of junk science, how it got into criminal courts to begin with, and the various you know, efforts to reform that were failures. And I did that kind of in parallel with three of my clients' cases. So mm-hmm. beginning in like the 1960s with the Sam Shepard trial, which is the first kind of nationally known trial where forensic scientists became stars in the post-World mm-hmm. War II era, it became an, um, something that you could aspire to. Before that, that wasn't true. And, you know, so some of the ways that I had tracked it was kind of how bite mark evidence first got admitted into court and looked at the way that the dentists had kind of invented this entire technique and invented credentials for themselves and invented, you know, these methods that, you know, didn't exist and then used a test case and got it into court. And then just how it spread like a virus around the criminal justice system and Mm -hmm. court after court after court after court admitted it as scientific evidence with zero empirical research at all. And, you know, what was really thought to be um, valid science because it led to convictions, you know, and it was a useful tool for conviction. And really until, you know, the forensic DNA analysis and the Innocence Project emerged, you know, in, in the mid 90s, that, you know, all of these techniques were believed to be valid and reliable. And then suddenly, we had people that were exonerated off death row that had been mm-hmm. put there by so called scientific evidence, you know, I mean, and, and those are just the cases that we know about. So really, that exposed the criminal legal system for being really unreliable, and where it had been previously thought to be, you know, essentially infallible. Mm-hmm. Let's start with bite marks, because it's real fascinating. And, you know, I guess it was the Ted Bundy case, I think you say in your book, that really made it a star, you know, but what was so compelling about bite marks? I mean, it's so it's so interesting to me that that would be the thing that starts this. Let, let's talk about that as a thing, because it used to be fingerprints. Fingerprints you see in all the movies, you know, fingerprints was the thing. And that does make sense in my mind, you know, that if you leave a print, it's you could pretty much match it. it unless it's really smudged, you know, it might be unreliable. But a, 
a bite mark seems so unreliable to me. Well, that's because you're a critical thinker. <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're not, if you think about it, you know, in a very superficial way that you have this idea, it's like, well, there's a bite mark found on a murder victim or an assault victim that survived. Mm-hmm. You can see something that looks like a bite mark and it makes some sort of superficial sense that you could find teeth that kind of match that bite mark. You would know who the biter was. Therefore, you would know who the perpetrator was. And really the, the forensic dentist who first got this into court, what they did was they created these credentials that were really based on victim identification, right? So if you hear these stories about somebody being burned beyond recognition, you know, and that they can only be um, identified by the dental records, that's your friendly neighborhood forensic dentist that did that work, right? You know, kind of nameless, faceless civil servants that were doing a public good, really, by identifying people. Right. But what they weren't doing was getting into court and testifying as expert witnesses. They weren't stars. They Mm. weren't really getting paid as expert witnesses. They didn't have their own field. And they started talking about bite mark evidence and and using this kind of superficial logic. And because what Mm. they were, they were in the morgues and they were observing bodies and they could see injuries that to them appeared to be bite marks, even though there was really no real way to know if in fact they were. And so they started this notion that, well, if we can do this, you know, is that we're already forensic scientists because we're working in forensics and we're doctors or dentists and, you know, we're in the the mortuaries. And so we're helping identify victims. Why not this too? And what you had was a kind of a perfect storm of, you know, Mm -hmm. this ability to create credentials that sounded fancy because they call themselves forensic odontologists. Oh my God. Right. Oh, this is so amazing. Right. And it's like, I didn't know what an odontologist was, but it just means a dentist, you know what I mean? But it sounds fancy. And then they got credentials that were related. They, they joined the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and they Mm. created a board certifying entity called the American Board of Forensic Odontology. And then, you know, when they got to court, what they started to do is conflate these two distinct areas of the subdisciplines of forensic dentistry, which was one was identifying bodies and one was bite marks. Mm-hmm. And, but you can make it sound like they're really related, you know, is that we identify people by their teeth and we identify people by the bite marks their teeth create. You know, it's something and it's really more like a geologist claiming mm-hmm. that because they can identify a rock that they can identify the rock that was used to bash in somebody's head, right? Totally unrelated. <laughs> right, exactly. That's not the geologist's job, right? Right. Just identify the rocks, please. <laughs> yes, thank you. Depart the field, geologist. You've done your job, yes. It feels like this was a, an attempt for recognition or something. It sounds thirsty the way it's described when it first came out. Like even the jokes about dentists that you mentioned in the book, too, like seems to play a part. Is it because you know, forensic science was being the star and these people wanted to be a part of that, do you think? Or, I mean, I some of that is benefit of the doubt. They had to think at some point that this really is valid, right? Yeah, I think with, with notable exceptions, you know, some of those exceptions I write about in my book, most of the, uh, the dentists that got into this did it with a good intentions, right? They weren't scientists, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't really understand, you know, and this is true with a lot of the forensic techniques that, I talk about in the book is that it's really built on guild structures, right? There isn't built like Mm -hmm. on science and, and from a research laboratory where you're, you know, kind of testing the the methodology and demonstrating that's reliable. What you have is, you know, what's really eminence-based knowledge rather than evidence-based knowledge, right? And so you have these leading practitioners Mm -hmm. and the only way that you can really get into the field 
is by having a mentor and then they give you casework and they give you opportunities to publish. And then when you, when you're in that world, you don't really question the science, right? There's no incentive mm -hmm. to question the science. And so people wanted to get into it for a lot of different reasons. You know, one of the reasons is because people are fascinated by criminal justice. They just are. There's a reason that criminal procedurals have been a staple on television for, you know, a hundred years, you know, or 50 years, whatever is like, is that because there's a voyeuristic aspect to it. There's a law and order aspect mm -hmm. to it. And there's a lot of, and then there's the ego aspect to it, which is not insignificant in this, right? So you get to be an expert, you get to pursue justice, you get to call yourself a scientist. So there are a lot of, you know, motivations, you know, and there are interviews that I found that went way back to the fifties and the sixties that talked about the dentists that were doing this and they were bored, you know, dentistry is a boring job. If you get tired of filling cavities and cleaning teeth, you know I mean? It's like, this is much more exciting work. <laughs> Sorry, dentist. That's kind of what your job is. Right. You know, yeah. but putting people on death row, that's a much more serious business than a root canal. You know Absolutely. I mean? And what it shows right. is just how dangerous it is. And this is really because in the United States today, unlike with the FDA, where you have, you know, that are clinically tested and scientifically demonstrated that toothpaste and aspirin is safe before you're unleashing it on the general public. Mm -hmm. We don't do that with forensics. There's no entity that's testing these forensic science techniques that are used to put people on death row yeah. and to take away life and liberty. You know, we care more about toothpaste than we do about forensic sciences, mm -hmm. which is really just astonishing. So this is how somebody like a group of dentists or a group of whomever could just invent themselves some credentials. And if they can persuade one judge that this is valid and reliable, then, you know, you're off. Yeah. What's fascinating about this approach, too, especially bird's eye view right now, looking back on the origins of it, is how big of a factor confirmation bias plays in what's supposed to be science as opposed to blank slate and come to conclusion based on evidence. I devote a chapter on cognitive bias, you know, and it's and it's part of, you know, a lot of the cases right. that are at issue. You know, I mean, one of the kind of most famous examples of it that I write about is the Brandon Mayfield case. Mm -hmm. The first time, and, and you mentioned fingerprints, you know, I mean, because fingerprints are, you know, and I believe that fingerprints are probably unique. Sure. But, you know, that's not a scientifically validated fact. We don't really know that. Right. Sure, but it's right, really right. So what's more the issue, and you mentioned this as well, is that is how much information that we need in a latent fingerprint found at a crime scene to call it a match, because we don't know how similar two prints might be. Mm -hmm. And the Brandon Mayfield case was this mild mannered Portland um, attorney who was wrongfully matched to a fingerprint that was found on the blast caps of the bombing of the, of the commuter train in Madrid, mm. Spain, uh, in 2004. So like 230 people died, and the FBI matched those prints to Brandon Mayfield, who happened to be Muslim and happened to be married to an Egyptian national mm -hmm. and happened to have represented some folks that have been convicted of um, providing material support to Al-Qaeda. So they thought they had their man and he was arrested on that evidence alone, even though he'd never been to Spain and was held incommunicado for weeks before the Spanish authorities who never bought that identified the actual, what they still believe today is the actual perpetrator of that who's actually still a fugitive. And what happened after he was arrested, the court appointed an independent expert to evaluate the evidence and the court appointed expert also confirmed that this was Brandon Mayfield's print. And then Brandon Mayfield's legal team hired an expert and he too confirmed that this was the print. But they all knew that the vaunted FBI crime lab had made this match 
right? So they were expecting mm. to find a match. And that's like, you know, a really a firm example of cognitive bias. And one of the most astonishing pieces of research that the Brandon Mayfield case led to was a study that Dr. ETL Drawer did. And what he did is he took five highly experienced board certified latent fingerprint experts, and he gave them casework. This is latent prints and potential matches to the exemplars. Mm -hmm. But what he didn't tell them was that this was from their own prior casework, that they had already come to conclusions on these potential matches. Mm -hmm. The only thing that changed was the contextual information that they were given, right? That there was a confession or that there was an eyewitness or something that pointed them one way or the other. And three-fifths of them changed their original conclusions based on nothing but the contextual information, the irrelevant contextual information that they had because the confirmation bias, they were expecting to find one way or the other. And that's what they find because these are subjective techniques, including front, um, fingerprints. And when you have subjectivity and there's subjectivity in all forensics, including mm -hmm. DNA, yeah. some much more than others, right? Mm -hmm. Bite marks is just gross speculation and some it's much less. But if we take no efforts to block that information that experts don't need to come to a conclusion as to whether or not there's a match, you're going to get this influence of bias. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can see it in like the three, like my clients cases that I track throughout the book, we could see the influence of bias throughout, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And, um, and it's really how pernicious it is. And there are zero efforts to mitigate the impact of bias in forensics and all other fields of science very well understood and efforts are made to shield experts from in irrelevant information because it leads to erroneous results. Yeah. And what's most egregious to me about the bite marks to get back to that again is that at least with DNA evidence, you're looking at, let's say raw data, the, what your eyes are seeing are numbers, you know, that have a value to them. But with bite marks, it's a Rorschach. You know, I mean, that's really, you're interpreting a, a photograph for Christ's sakes, or I mean, it's someone's feeling about a painting. You know what? I like this one. That one doesn't do too much for me. You know, that's how thin bite mark seems to me. It's astonishing to me. You know, I mean, it's, you know, one of the example that I use in the book is it's kind of like looking at a cloud formation, you know, and saying, that, right. you know, hey, doesn't that look like an elephant? Right. And then you look at, oh, yeah, that does look like an elephant. And then you really can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. So you have an expert witness saying you that is an elephant. My training and experience tells me that that's an elephant. And you look at it and you see, oh yeah, I see that's an elephant. That's what bite marks are. Mm -hmm. And I have the pictures in the book of the couple of the bite marks that were used in my client's cases. You know, and one of them, you know, we know it was a bite mark, mm -hmm. right? Because the victim survived and said it was that she'd been bitten by the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. And you look at the other one, Stephen Cheney's, and mm -hmm. it looked to me when I was looking at it, because I'm a skeptic, you know I mean? That, that he'd been branded, that the victim had been branded days before he was murdered. And that was the actually the original conclusion in Stephen Cheney's case that it had been some of, they thought it was a bite mark, but that it had been inflicted days before mm -hmm. the actual homicide. Cause it looked to me like it had been healing, you know, as a lawyer, not a sure. doctor. And then when we got all of the documents from the Dallas district attorney's office, when they turned it over to us and we started looking at the timeline of the analysis that was done in the case, we saw that the dentist who testified had originally said that it had been days before that this injury had occurred. And so did the medical examiner. Right. Then they alighted on Stephen Cheney as a suspect. And then the 
they went back to the dentist and the dentist said, oh, right. Yeah, I think this actually was at or around the time of the murder. At or around is very different than this probably was about three days before. Yeah, because then it was really irrelevant. Right. You know, I mean, like, you know, I mean, because you needed to put Stephen Cheney on the victim's body at the time of the murder. And that was the only evidence that they had that could do that. And initially, and we see this in many of cases that mm-hmm. I work on at the Innocence Project and some of the others that are talked about in the case is that prior to trial or when during the investigative phase, this evidence would be, you know, originally the dentist said it was just consistent with Stephen Cheney's teeth. And as it got closer to trial, it became, no, that's Stephen Cheney's teeth, right? And then when he got on the witness stand, it was one in a million that anybody apart from Stephen Cheney could have left that bite mark. And it was inflicted at the time of the murder. So it's like a directed verdict, scientific evidence proving it. And it was nonsense. Total bullshit. And what's fascinating about the Cheney case is that this was a double murder that looked like, to me, like a, an assassination, you know, or, or high, a kill for hire, whatever that's called. And they actually suspected, you know, a person in that world, in that underground world, properly suspected, it seemed, questioned this person, let them go without doing anything, even had boots on that could have matched the, the imprint of the boot. There's all this evidence leading to this person. Nah, we'll go with this person who had and nine alibis of being somewhere else. You know, I, that one blew my mind, you know, of all the overwhelming evidence. And it seemed like the defense was like, what are we going to do? The bite marks. What are we going to do? Yeah, I, I was astonished by that. It was astonishing that he also, because there were there were two perpetrators. I mean, I was never in dispute yes. how they didn't just arrest, you know, that person as well it was astonishing to me. You know, and I, it's another picture that's in the book is that you could see these bloody boot prints leaving the crime scene, right? <laughs> yes. Right. And this guy is 250 pounds. He had been uh, twice been uh, indicted for drug trafficking. The victims mm-hmm. in Stephen Cheney's case were this husband and wife team that sold cocaine out of their apartment in the 80s in the Dallas, you know, go-go Dallas uh, party scene during that time. And they got in trouble with their suppliers, you know, I mean, and that had happened before. And Stephen Cheney was a small time drug user at the time. And, you know, certainly not a dealer and not a heavy. And had He'd been arrested mm-hmm. twice for marijuana possession. And that was right. it. And somehow they hooked both murders on it, you know, and 28 years went by. That's unbelievable. And, and this is like, you know, also the power of junk science to overwhelm right. evidence of innocence. As you point out, Stephen Cheney had nine alibi witnesses, you know, accounting yeah. for every second of his day from the morning that he woke up and he went to the work until the following day where he'd spent the night hundreds of miles away from the crime scene. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. As a as a black man in America, you know, I've always, of course, been keenly aware of how white people used to be the junk science. Like, whatever a white person said was the expert opinion, especially against a black person, you know. And it feels like junk science is the new white guy. (laughs) (laughs) Where it's like, sorry, that's infallible. The white guy said it. Junk science said it. But we can't question that. That can't be questioned itself. You know, that's infallible. And I apologize for my crude analogy. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, and, and I, you know, talk a little bit about some of like the hair microscopy audit, you know, the or microscopic hair comparison. Yes, yes. Which was, you know, that was like my first 
week at the Innocence Project, you know, the, the largest forensic scandal in our nation's history was unfolding mm-hmm. at the time. And the FBI had admitted that it testified misleading and falsely in thousands and thousands of cases. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was looking into that, and, you know, this was part of my job and was to, you know, participate in the audit of all these cases. And, you know, when I ever did, I did this with bite marks and I did it with hair comparison and arson and bias and all the rest of it, like try to really get to the roots of how did it come in? How is it being used? How is it being leveraged in criminal court? And you could see these cases because they had decided to, that they could identify the ethnicity of a person by their hair. Mm-hmm. And so they would make these categories of races that Mm. which by the way they couldn't do but they claimed the ability to do and then they called anybody that that they thought had come from a black person it was a a so-called negroid hair right (laughs) and so they this these terms have not been abandoned they're still used today and amazing one of the two of the cases that i talk about were black men that were falsely accused of raping white women and mm-hmm. matched to hairs allegedly from them that were found on the victims. And so you get testimony, expert witness testimony, saying mm-hmm. that the defendant's negroid hair was found in the pubic com- combings of the white victim is not only a junk science, but by playing on the racist tropes that have led to wrongful executions, ring lynchings, exactly. and 400 years of you know, our history of, in this country around you know, racial terror. And you could intellectualize it and weaponize it as junk science, you know, is like all the more powerful. And wasn't in one of those cases, I don't know if it was that, where it proved to be the woman's own pubic hair? Yeah, Mark Reed in Connecticut, right? So not only was it not a black person's hair, it was the victim's own hair. Own pubic hair. That's crazy. That's still admissible evidence today. And so is bite marks and all the techniques I talk about in the book. You know, this is not a historical record. This is contemporary criminal justice. What drew you into the Innocence Project? What were you doing right before it? And what kind of drew you into this? Well, I'm a second generation public defender. My father was a public defender at the Legal Aid Society in New York in 69 Mm -hmm. and 70. That's when he met my mom. We got busted on a drug trafficking charge and uh, he was her attorney. From that start, you know, you can draw a direct- So romantic. <laughs> it's so romantic. <laughs> so yeah, I, like, marriage that wasn't meant to last, obviously. So I, I knew when I was in law school that I was going to be a defense attorney. I had, you know, long harbored a passion for reforming the criminal legal mm. system. And, you know, there's really, you know, and you have to go and do the work and be, you know, in the so-called trenches and stand by your client's side to really have an understanding of what's going on. And like a lot of people that work in my field is that it can be kind of soul destroying when mm-hmm, you're definitely. playing, you know, kind of a cog in the machine. And I talk about some of those experiences in the book and what I wanted to have is a larger impact, you know, on and try to do more systemic work and, um, and do strategic litigation in that regard. And so I went to the Innocence Project, and I'm not a scientist, you know, I'm a lawyer, you know, I mean, and I was a, uh, an English major, you know, so I spent a year learning science when I got there, you know, I mean, in auditing stats classes and like having, you know, law meetings with some of the top scientists in the country that are interested in advancing justice. And so I, you know, became passionate about it because I could see the power of the 
of the use of scientific evidence in criminal court, both to free the innocent and also how junk science can convict the innocent. You know, I mean, and, and really what I, I tried to kind of explore the three cases that I talk about that are the backbones of the book is a Keith Harward case, which is kind of a slam dunk DNA exoneration. But then there's Stephen Cheney and Eddie Lee Howard. And both of those cases are non-DNA cases. And it just shows really that what we're dealing with as far as junk science convictions go is just the tip of the iceberg because it's so hard to overturn a conviction. Once mm-hmm. um, a jury comes back guilty, you know, I mean, it's really almost impossible mm-hmm. without, you know, really, really powerful DNA evidence. And so, so many of the reforms that we talk about are we have to be willing to go back in this country to take a second look at convictions mm-hmm. that rest on junk science because often, and this was the case in many of these techniques, is that everybody in the courtroom believed at the time that this was valid evidence, right? The defense attorney, the judge, the jurors, everybody is operating under the same mass illusion that that was being like, you know, hoodwinked everybody in the courtroom. Uh And then with the advance of science, when you got the first mainstream scientists that took a look at some of the claims that were Uh being made in court, they were astonished. They're like, this isn't far from even basic science, you know, and that's, this is true today. Whenever I, you know, I try to recruit mainstream scientists into forensics because we need more and more people that have a science background to kind of, to advance, you know, the work and always are just flabbergasted by the lack of transparency, the failure to mitigate bias, the lack of empirical research, the lack of replication of any of these tests. I mean, it just cries out for a a federal entity to do this type of testing because trying to separate sense from nonsense in a criminal trial, almost impossible. Right. Because both sides have an agenda as well. Exactly right. You know, in good science, will always admit the limitations of a study mm-hmm. or limitations of the field. That's a normal part of science. You know, so when you get into court, lawyers like me are going to take those limitations and use them for our client's benefit. Mm-hmm. So do the so do the prosecutors. Everybody does that, right? That's their job mm-hmm. is to point out the weakness in these techniques. And evidence gets twisted because this is not a science lab. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is the gloves are off. You know, I mean, trials are adversarial. Right. And it leads to a lot of distortion of the truth. Chris, how big of an issue is the court of public opinion in regards to region? Because a place like Oklahoma, where there's a the death penalty or whatever, seems to be more egregious cases than maybe New York, possibly. I don't know if that's the case, but it, does a region make a difference, the court of public opinion, with junk science and its application? So two things there. You know, I mean, uh, one is that I thought you know, that it would be like, kind of like your question Mm -hmm. that, you know, down deep South, you know, I write about cases in Mississippi and in Texas, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And and that was kind of what I anticipated when I went to the Innocence Project is that there would be regions of the country that are uh, where it's more of a problem than Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Sure. But what I was astonished to find is that's totally not true. Wow. And, you know, what one of the scenes that I write about in the book is a hearing on bite mark evidence about the admissibility of bite mark evidence that was in Manhattan, Mm -hmm. 100 Center Street, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, the head of the forensics unit still today in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office successfully introduced bite mark evidence in a homicide trial in 2013 in you know this country that that case is still on appeal mm-hmm. so 
I have seen around the country that what happens is when you have weak cases that are largely circumstantial, that's when you reach for junk science. And prosecutors, mm. they have an ethical obligation to subjectively believe in the guilt of the people that they're prosecuting. So once you have that, I believe that this person is guilty beyond reasonable doubt, mm -hmm. then you're going to use whatever tools that are available to you in the criminal justice system to make that conviction stick. And so this evidence is admissible. They're not scientists. They believe it. And you can certainly rationalize the outcome if you believe this person murdered somebody or something like that, that you're going to use that evidence. And so you know, like a broken clock that's right twice a day. Sometimes they got it right. right. You know I mean, but what you don't think about is the systemic aspects of it. You know, so one of the things, you know, as you mentioned, the Ted Bundy case, you know, I went back and, you know, it, it's, I didn't know much about Ted Bundy. Mm -hmm. I'd heard him and raised, you know, a bunch of times, you know what I mean? And, and still today you can sell a lot of movie tickets if you just talk about Ted Bundy because he was a very famous case. Mm -hmm. But I read every newspaper article from the time he was first suspected, you know, in Seattle through the crime spree into Utah, you know, I mean, and in Colorado and then all the way to the Chi Omega murders mm -hmm. where he was finally captured. Also in this, I found what was interesting. Here is a guy who was savagely killing women and women were publicly attracted to him at the same time. We're saying, oh, he's so He's so cute and all this. I was like, what is going on in this world? Right, yeah. I, <laughs> bizarre. But anyway, I digress. Uh, yeah. That is bizarre. America. And it was shocking to me is how little evidence that they actually had. Against, right. Uh, what I was going to say is, my point by that is, people can be too good looking to be guilty of something, I guess is my point, you know, which plays into bias. People don't want to believe a good looking person did something bad. But if you're not good looking, if you're not attractive... Or if you're not attractive in other ways, via your race or your circumstance or whatever, you're going to be 80% more guilty <laughs> just right from the start. 100%. It's a definitely another form of bias. You think about all of like the, the high profile criminal trials, you know, almost always, you know, involve, you know, attractive people or conventionally attractive people, right. you know, I mean, it's like, who's the guy who uh, was convicted of killing his pregnant wife in San Diego so many years ago? Yeah. I was thinking of the same, yeah. He got proposals while he was in prison. Right. They used a lot of junk science in his case, too. I'm, I'm not suggesting he's innocent. But I, I don't know anything about the right. facts of the case. But with Ted Bundy, there was no eyewitness. There was no other forensic evidence. There was no confession. The only person that had seen somebody leaving the sorority after the murders, Nina Neary, had wrongfully identified a maintenance person from the building as the suspect until they arrested Ted Bundy and she changed her mind. And that was the guy. And the sheriff, Sheriff Catarsis, had just been elected. He had almost no policing experience. And his only claim to fame, really, and, and the basis of, of his platform to run for sheriff in Tallahassee was that he taught forensic techniques and police investigative techniques at the local community college. So he was up on this new emerging bite mark analysis that the dentists had invented. And you know, when they first arrested him, he was giving press uh, conferences outside the jail cell where they were interrogating him. And he talked about, you know, they were going to scour the earth, look for any evidence. Somebody mentioned something about bite mark. He says, well, that was really weak evidence and it was really faint. And I don't think we're going to be doing anything about that. And then a few months later, when they failed to find any other evidence against him, he started calling it Bundy's signature that he left on the on the victim. And he made a star out of the dentist because the case really ended up rising and falling on their testimony. 
You know what I mean? And that was the first nationally televised criminal trial in our nation's history. Ted Bundy is this charismatic guy who was representing himself on and off throughout the trial, was conducting his own cross-examinations of Dick Suveron. It became just this lurid, sensational trial Mm -hmm. that, you know, still today resonates. And I talk about that hearing in Manhattan in my book. They were talking about the Ted Bundy case in 2013, right? Still, you know, Ted Bundy's victims extend all the way up into contemporary times. Yeah, and the irony of that whole thing is that junk science got lucky. You know, bad science did the right thing in that case. You know, it stopped this mass murder. But unfortunately, uh, you know, it becomes the thing that people believed in rather than it just got lucky that time, you know, because you can't prove that. It's harder to prove that than the other way. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I say, broken clocks are right twice a day, you know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. You know, when I, um, you know, because as you can imagine, you know, um, I'm not popular with the forensic dentists. And, you know, when I go to the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting, sometimes I'll get yelled at. I, I've been physically threatened by these guys. Like, oh and what God. they will do at a 70 year old man, right? Chased me down a sidewalk in Seattle, wanted to fight. Wow. I fled. You know, I was like, just to be clear. <laughs> but, you know, what they'll say, you know, often is that you, you never want to talk about all the times we got it right. And I was like, yeah, I don't talk about planes landing safely at the airport either, right? You know, we talk about <laughs> the plane crashes, right? That's what matters. How do you pick someone for the Innocence Project? I know you guys get a lot of inundations, but if we look at human nature, not everyone who says they're innocent is innocent, of course, too. Do you have a spidey sense about it? Are there certain things you look for in cases that kind of raise your suspicion right away? What What is your process like? So um, one of the most important things about the impact that the Innocence Project has had on the criminal legal system is the intake criteria, what you're talking about. This is before I was there, but the uh, what that was decided was that they're going to take any case in which biological evidence if could be found and tested, proved innocence, they would take it. So it didn't matter if the person had confessed, didn't matter if there were 10 eyewitnesses, didn't matter what other forensics, you know, were pointing in guilt, only the DNA. If we could find it and test it, we'd take it. And what that showed was just how fallible all these other forms of evidence actually are. It showed that eyewitnesses are routinely wrong. It shows that people confess for crimes that they hadn't committed, including capital crimes. And it showed that the forensic sciences that were being used were, you know, many of them were grossly unreliable. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so if we had been, you know, trying to divine whether somebody was guilty or innocent, you know, we would be in the same boat as the experts who are just using subjective speculation to understand, you know, I've been wrong both ways. The um, where I thought for sure my client was innocent, you know, for a million years, then it came back. No, wasn't, you know, I mean, and other times where I was pretty convinced my client was guilty and, you know, they were entirely innocent. So I long ago suspended my own judgment on this and just be like, what can be proved and what can't be proved, right? It's just been around too long until I understand, you know, I mean, and, and what we do in strategic litigation, because we know that the truth Uh, that the search for the truth is never advanced to the use of junk science is that we look for junk science cases, you know what I mean? And then we do those investigations Mm. and what we try to do is get courts and sometimes prosecutors through conviction integrity units, which I write about a little bit in the book to 
understand that this is not a reliable verdict, right? That we can't mm -hmm. have confidence in this verdict because junk science was used at trial. And what we'll argue for is a new trial to have one. If you can prove, you know, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt without cheating, then fine. But you must have fair trials. And it's never a fair trial when junk science is used. And what is the biggest obstacle to changing the mind of, I don't know if it's the district attorney trying to change the mind of, or to getting a new trial or to have something which is even tougher, I would think, is to overturn a verdict, right? Is, is that a tougher thing to do? Well, you have to overturn the verdict to get a new trial. So both things happen, right? But the largest obstacle are really, there are a couple. Um, one is that violent crime is overwhelmingly prosecuted in state courts and rather than federal courts and state mm -hmm. judges and prosecutors are largely elected. And despite, you know, notable exceptions of progressive prosecutors, you know, here and there, you know, overwhelmingly judges and prosecutors run on law and order platforms. And mm -hmm. so their idea of overturning convictions disrupts the status quo that admits error, it threatens careers, it threatens civil liability. And there are also a tremendous amount of procedural hurdles that have been erected really in, you know, beginning with, you know, Bill Clinton and when he signed the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act in 1996 which sought off avenues of relief in federal courts for state court convictions, right? So it's, it's really, really almost impossible to get a, a conviction overturned in federal court. And so most of these cases, and I write about this in the book with a couple of the wrongful execution cases that I talk about, and that when you have a prosecutor that convicted somebody at trial, a judge who presided over that trial, then somebody like me comes back 15 years later and says, you know what, my client's innocent, you know, this person was innocent. That case, when you file for a new trial, when you file that motion for a new trial, when you have new evidence, when you have DNA or you have evidence that it was junk science was used or what have you, it almost always goes back to the same prosecutor and the same judges who originally tried the case, right? Mm. And so you have to persuade the people who were responsible for the, the first time for wrongfully convicting your client, not only that they were wrong, but they did this to this person and who maybe spent 20, 30, 40 years in prison based on your error. And it's a very, very hard thing to do to persuade somebody that they were that wrong. When someone is released after being in prison for like 30 years or something, we focus on, you know, the effect on them, of course. But I've always wanted to ask the question, have you ever looked into what is the effect on the victim's family who thought that person was guilty? Is there ever like a reaching out to that person at all? Or are they now back to where they were before? Like, have you talked to those families also? Yes, it's devastating for them too. It's challenging for us representing the innocent person because mm -hmm. overwhelmingly the victim's family believes that the conviction was mm -hmm. righteous. You know, you, you'd want to believe that, you'd have to believe that. And so there is um, a large effort to try to be compassionate, you know what I mean, and, and to offer support. And usually, you know, district attorneys are good about reaching out to victims 
and discussing this as well and offering support, but it, it's devastating for them too. And then often victims' families have trouble accepting that the mm-hmm. person who was convicted is actually innocent. I was going to talk a little bit about the the CSI effect, you know, I mean, um, in, in, as it relates to the Alfred Swinton case, but I had had a, um, what related to that case and after the exoneration, you know, I was walking and I knew that it was going to be a problem and victims' family was, you know, a huge scene was created in court after he was released from prison because they believed that a murderer was being released. And, you know, I don't fault them for feeling that way. And, you know, the criminal justice system brings a lot of pain and suffering to everybody. You know, nothing good happens, you know, and it's not a place for healing. You know, wrongful convictions, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, not only is it devastating for the victim's family and devastating for our clients, But it also, in countless of our cases, the actual perpetrator in these cases went on to commit many, many more crimes while our clients were doing their time. One of my clients, you know, Keith Harward, was one of these cases where we were actually able to identify the actual perpetrator through the DNA evidence that was discovered at the crime scene. And he'd gone on to commit dozens more crimes and died in prison, you know, before Keith Harward was ever exonerated. So, you know, it's a, it's a tragedy always. Where are we now with junk science today? Is anybody out there besides people like you? I don't know how, if that's landing as a movement at all, but is, are, is there a big pin being put into it culturally right now? Like, in other words, so let me ask this a different way. Like, what you're focusing on is the truth of something, right? But the prosecution's job is just to convince humans of something, you know, to convince people of something, not to prove that something is scientifically true. It's to convince you that this person is guilty, right? There is a distinction there because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether something was done or not. It's whether they believe it, right? And that's a, it's a fine distinction. So do you think culturally people are more skeptical of those things? Like people are more skeptical of police and their uh, accounts and that type of thing, they take, you know, it used to be, oh, yeah, if, well, if a police person said it, that's a person of authority. But now it's like, mm, I don't know if I can believe that person now. Where's junk science in that? Well, part of the reason I wrote the book was in an effort to dispel a lot of the myths around forensics that are used today. We're, we're trying a, a new a new genre, the not true crime genre, so we can, you mm-hmm. know, undo some of these, you know, and I mentioned CSI a couple of minutes ago. And shows like that and forensic files depict forensics as infallible. And it's had a really pernicious effect on jurors, right? Because most jurors are familiar with those. I watch those shows and they, you know, believe what they see in television in the way that it's also often presented in court. Jurors want, like everybody else, to figure out what happened. They want to understand the story. You know, they're not thinking about legal definitions or anything. They say, what happened? Is this the right guy? Or not. And they wanted to make sense to them, too. The, the worst thing is for this doesn't make sense. Like, you know, <laughs> but if it makes sense, yeah, OK, that makes sense. And if you have, you know, somebody that's offering a truth that you can't divine for yourself, right? That scientific truth mm-hmm. that the judge has said, this person is an expert. You can rely on this person. It's an objective fact. Mm-hmm. This person doesn't have a stake in the outcome of the proceedings, doesn't have a dog in this fight, right? Isn't have an axe to grind with the defendant. That's very powerful and persuasive evidence. And popular culture perpetuates this myth. You know, in fact, we've taken two cases that we watched the forensic files episode, right? And we, the lawyers in my department are like, that person seems, in- if you're skeptical about forensics, that person seems innocent. 
right? So like mm-hmm. Jimmy Genrick, a case that I talk about in the book a little, was convicted of a series of pipe bombings in Colorado. He's on that show. We're litigating that case. Alfred Swinton was thought to be a serial killer in Connecticut. And they tried to put something like mm. eight bodies on him, but he was only convicted of one murder on bite mark evidence. We saw that picked up his case, right? And exonerated him about a year and a half later. And you could still watch the Forensic Files episode on YouTube showing him to be a serial killer. And thank God that the bite mark evidence was available. Oh my God. How do we reform this criminal justice system? Do you have any ideas on that? Or it's like, look, I, you know, all I can do is try to do this, but uh, how do we reform this system? Well, to be clear, you know, junk science is a symptom of a much larger disease of systemic racism and mass incarceration. That's like the fundamental problems with our justice system today. You know, and so the reforms that we need, you know, on mass incarceration are, you know, beyond the scope of the book, but the I, I don't want to overstate, you know, or understate, you know, the larger issues that are related to that. You know, I mean, we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world and mm. nearly the highest rate of violent crime. So the idea of that mass incarceration mm. is effective at reducing violent crime is empirically wrong, right? Obvious. As far mm. as junk science should be a much easier fix, right? You know, is that we have lobbied at the Innocence Project for the National Institute of Standards and Technology which is a scientific bureau of the of federal government. It's part of the Commerce Department to take on validation research in forensics, right? To demonstrate that they're valid and reliable before they're used in court and before they're part of a criminal case is that when you're making decisions on what's valid science and judges and this widespread scientific illiteracy in both in around the country and certainly lawyers are no exception, maybe even, you know, more you know, prone to that then mm-hmm. what happens is that the decisions are made not toward, you know, systemic view of the way the science might be used or, but really about, is that defendant guilty? And is this a tool that's going to help convict this de- guilty defendant? And really that's it. And larger consequences of those decisions are not thought about, you know, outside of the context of that case. And we have to remove scientific evidence from the adversarial process. Right. You know, I mean, otherwise Mm. we're going to continue getting what I write about in the book, you know, and that's wrongful convictions that are, you know, seemingly reliable because they rely on forensic sciences. But, you know, they're not. Yeah, because as long as junk science is the friend of the prosecutor, it can't be looked at in a meaningful way, you know, because there's something at stake. If you dismantle it, well, there's something is lost there that they don't want to lose. And beyond that is that this is why the microscopic hair comparison on it was such a big deal is that. It's so disruptive to the status quo that when a a forensic technique becomes discredited, Mm. you know, then we suddenly have to look back at all these convictions, you know, and then people don't want to do that. You know, I mean, that's for sure true. That's exactly right. Well, this book is it's really amazing. It opens your eyes in so many ways. It confirms things and also elucidates things. Um, Let me ask you this. And I appreciate you being here, Chris. (laughs) I hate ending on a sad note. (laughs) I hate you. But I feel this is an important question, and this is this will just be a, a guess on your part, a conjecture. I know you don't have probably don't have this number, but if you could make a guess, what percentage of people do you think are sitting in prison currently with the wrongful conviction due to junk science? If you look at it this way, is that you know we have two point three million people currently in various forms of incarceration in this country at any given time. Mm -hmm. And you think that if even 1% of them have been wrongfully convicted, 
you're talking about tens of thousands. And, you know, I write about astonishing cases that, you know, have made headlines, you know, I mean, and are really incredible searing injustices. But, you know, what I also write about is the time that I spent the Bronx Defenders, you know, I mean, when I was working in the South Bronx as a trial attorney, and, you know, I went into my first arraignment shift. And I, you know, arraigned and represented probably about 30 people that night, I would say seven or eight of them were entirely innocent had done nothing wrong whatsoever. And that was mind blowing to me because I had been an appellate attorney before that. And most of the clients that I had handled during that time seemingly were factually, you know, guilty of whatever it is that they had, you know, been convicted of. So I didn't recognize all these cases that I wasn't seeing and that aren't in books like junk science and aren't talked about, you know, day in, day out, you know, like these incredible, you know, death row exonerations, but all these people who had just been, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time. And a lot of them were related to presumptive drug tests, right? Drug tests that were, you know, some pills found in a car or some pipe allegedly has some, you know, foreign substance in it that they test on the side of a road. And many of those tests are junk science. And many of them are prone to confirmation bias. And then you get arrested for drug possession. You spend a day, two days, three days, sometimes a week in jail. And then you're offered a plea to get out. And you really have no resources to fight that plea. And so you plead guilty to something that you didn't do. You have a criminal record. You have all the collateral consequences like housing and all the benefits and job placement and all the rest that you lose as a result. And that is a junk science conviction, right? And that happens day in, day out around the country. You know, so the the stories that I write about are really an effort because, you know, I tried to write the book like a, you know, a not true crime adventure, right? Because I want to keep the pages turning, right? And people to be interested in the stories. It's a thousand percent a page turner. I'll tell you that much. Right. So because I, you know, want people that aren't, you know, I didn't want to write a science book, you know, but I wanted mm-hmm. to write, you know, the stories that people would care about. And that would be, and so... So those are what I'm writing about. But the day in, day out junk science cases are every day. It's going on in your town right now. Somebody's standing up at arraignments and pleading guilty to something that they didn't do because they have don't have the resources to fight it. And one of the other things, this is like, you know, when I really decided to write the book is really after I met Stephen Cheney for the first time. And I was just recognizing that how he felt that he had won the lottery. You know, he felt that it was God, you know, I mean, that had guided, you know, the Innocence Project to taking on his case. And it's because, you know, the Innocence Project is small. We're tiny, you know, or certainly compared to the scale of the of the justice system. So if you have, you know, if we take up your case, it's a one in a million, you know, I mean, and, and we can bring resources to those cases. But, you know, I think it's shudder to think of how many thousands and thousands and thousands of people will never even get their letters read. Yeah. I mean, we read all of our letters, but they go everywhere, right? And we have, you know, thousands of people waiting for our help right now. And that's always true. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I will tell people this definitely, it says junk science, but it's not a scientific book. It it reads like a thriller. And I don't say that superficially or lightly. I say you did that as a service to us. (laughs) It makes it, no, it really is a service because it makes it easier to digest, you know, to understand the consequences and those sorts of things and the stakes that are involved. You know, I'm a writer by trade, so conflict and, you know, setting up scenes and all that. So it reads dramatic to me, which I appreciate, you know, it's just, 
it gets into your body quicker. That's why when I was reading, I was like, ah, you know, ah, I can't believe this is going on. This is the way that human beings understand the world around us. Storytelling. Yeah, right? that's you know right. I mean? and Absolutely. That's, you know, um, the storytelling is very, very powerful and it can be very misleading. You know, we can see it both ways in the book. That's right? absolutely right. So true. Junk science, you guys, in the American criminal justice system. Chris Fabricant, I appreciate all your work out there. Thanks for being on the show, Chris. Thanks so much for having me, Larry. 